Hello and welcome to the Cinema in Seconds podcast. This is the podcast where we look at small moments in great movies. My name is Ian. And I'm Daniel. And this week, I mean, we're right in the middle of summer, so we're going to go with vacation movies. Uh, To help us out, we have a brand new guest, Kira. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, guys. I'm excited. Yeah, it's going to be good. This is kind of like a selfish tie-in for me because I'm going on holidays in like a week, so I'm going on vacation. Yeah, right. You're going. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I'm not. (laughs) Uh I, I spend most of my time saying I should take a vacation, not even to go anywhere, just take like a week off. Uh, you and deserve I, it. I, I do, uh, but I, I don't. And I just, <laughs> you know, just keep on trucking until it all breaks down suddenly. And, and then uh, that's when you. And cataclysmically. That's... Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's the best way to go about things. <laughs> to so. really take the vacation when you need the escapism the most exactly exactly um which is maybe like i am kidding but is also maybe emblematic of the the movies and picks i chose for this week in terms of like absolutely vacation uh not exactly easy and restful vibes but we'll we'll get listeners can decide after whether you need one or not yeah that's fair let us know he needs a vacation (laughs) yes comment below does dan need a vacation (laughs) yep yeah, and um, well, after a three and a half hour video, you probably do. So, if anybody out there watches the or is paying attention to the Eyebrow Cinema's YouTube channel, Dan, you got a pretty big one that just came out. Yeah. Um. So the last couple episodes was it was vaguely alluded to because I didn't know if it would be out by then or not. Turns out it was out pretty quickly after we recorded like two weeks ago. So now it's like been out for days and there's these podcasts where I'm like, something's coming, but it's there already. <laughs> um, but now as we're recording, it's like, it's fully out. It's been a couple days now. It's doing well. Uh, it's three and a half hours. Uh, Kubrick's books, the adaptations of Stanley Kubrick, where I go through basically Stanley Kubrick's entire filmography. Cause most everything was based on, uh, a novel or novella and talk about the adaptation process and how Kubrick adapted uh, source novels and source material. I think it's the best thing I've ever made. Uh, obviously I'm trying to sell it. So, you know, brain of salt and all, but I really truly believe like it's the work I'm most proud of. Uh, speaking of things that I might need a vacation for, we're also uh, currently uh, house sitting an extra cat. So oh, that's what you need. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, you know, my life was talk too about relaxing. Yeah, so, um, and I bring that up, not for pity, uh, although if you have any to spare, that's fine, but more because <laughs> it may affect the recording when, you know, they start punching it out next to me. Yeah. So, just fair warning, listeners, <laughs> and my fellow hosts. Um, yeah, the video's out, and it's doing well, and people seem to be really enjoying it, despite the length, which was definitely a concern of mine, so that's uh, relieving to hear, and um if Kubrick is of interest to you, I would really highly recommend it. Yeah. I, I like, I haven't even watched half of his films. So it's like, that's now got to be on my to-do list. Well, there's timestamps too. So you can skip the ones you haven't seen. If you're like, I'll get to that later. Yeah. (laughs) That's good. Good to know. Yeah. It's pretty huge. Um, Yeah. I think people will decide that you need a vacation after, (laughs) after that. Well, that's yeah. kind of them. And Kira, you and I, we're going to opposite coasts, hey? You're going west, yeah. I'm going east. 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm headed to Vancouver um, on Tuesday. And then we'll drive right back and then immediately back the same direction to California. Because we couldn't just do it all in one trip, of course. Like, why <laughs> why not just drive straight down to California from BC? I mean, my sister and I differed on that decision, but that's all right. <laughs> why not put 10,000 kilometers on my vehicle this summer? It's fine. It's all good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sweet. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I guess we're in the vacation mode, so we may as well get into some vacation movies. Uh, I'll start things off. For some of us, cinema is our only vacation, so it's like... Yeah. <laughs> Escapism. <laughs> exactly. So these, so these are the movies you want. Well, half of them anyway. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> we'll get to some iffy vacations later. Uh, but we're going to start off with a pretty sweet one first. So we're going to talk about Roman Holiday from 1953, directed by William Wyler, who's otherwise famous for Ben-Hur. Um, but this is a very different movie from that. And starring Audrey Hepburn and Gregory Peck. And the whole, I mean, the whole deal here is Audrey Hepburn is playing a princess from an unsaid country. Just, I think, yeah, just a kind of like, what was that movie with Anne Hathaway where she's a princess? Princess Diaries. Right. It's like a made up country, right? Yeah. Yeah. Princess Diaries (laughs) is basically the direct descendant of Roman Holiday. Yeah. Yeah, and you know what? I actually, when I was like thinking about my the movie, one of the movies I chose, and I was like rereading the synopsis of Roman Holiday, I was like, this has actually got a lot of tie-in to um, Monte Carlo, the other one of the other movies that I that yeah. I chose too. I was like, this is uncanny. Yeah, I definitely see that. Definitely. Yeah, yeah Roman Holiday is it's a fantastic movie. It's one of my favorites from that era. Definitely. Um, and so the the whole idea is that Audrey Hepburn is this princess who sneaks out, who's on a like European tour and she's in Rome and she, she's sick of like the stuffy lifestyle. So she decides to try to sneak out of her estate and she does um, to kind of, you know, just explore <laughs> Rome and hang out with the people. And of course she meets Gregory Peck on the way and he's a reporter who knows that she's the princess and just kind of playing along so that he can get the story. Um, my moment comes from a scene where they are going dancing. So they've been invited to this kind of cool little cafe, cafe patio deal where there's like late night dancing. And it's across from the castle St. Angelo, which is a real castle in Rome. Um, and so it's kind of hanging out in the background, which is pretty cool. But... Of course, people at this point know that the princess is missing. And so all the guards from her unknown country have all come to Rome to try to find her and track her down. Because that's a big deal when you lose your princess. And they find her. I can't remember how, but they eventually find her at this place. And so you've got kind of like these thugs in suits. So you know exactly who they are. Um, And they come and they try to take her away. And of course, what ends up happening is the whole place erupts into like this big brawl, this big scene where they're they're trying to escape and and everybody starts getting into fist fights and everything like that and there's a cool little moment here where one of the guards is kind of tussling with uh gregory peck and he ends up falling over the railing of this patio and into the river into the tiber river 
But the great detail here is that um, Audrey Hepburn actually like grabs a life preserver and throws it to him and then just keeps going on with the brawl and yeah. trying to escape. And it's it's a kind of like a nice humanist touch in a movie yeah. that is full of those kind of touches. Like this is, I just kind of picked this moment because it's just one that's stuck in my head, but this is a movie of small moments. It's full of like just little details like that, that speak a lot to the characters and a lot to just kind of the, the lighthearted tone of, of this movie that I really appreciate. So I like that little bit of comic relief. Yeah. It's like the whole movie like has nodes of that throughout. So it's like right when it's starting, you're like, Oh my gosh. But then, and yeah. then just that little piece and continuing on too. Yeah, it's 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 great stuff. And even there's even like a little moment just before they go try to get her where you see like two of these guys in suits and the one is kind of like bobbing and t- tapping his feet to the music and the other guy looks at him. He's like, oh, <laughs> I'll yeah. stop. I, I actually love that part. The when it, After she's thrown the, the life preserver and then um, I, can't, I can't remember if it's before that or after um the guy starts the band up again and there and he's like he like orchestrating to to the fight that's happening and then um when she grabs the guitar and then and uh i can't remember he comes in and like he's like he's like yeah that's a good shot and she like hits hits the guy with the uh with the guitar oh yeah and he has to get it with the camera yeah Yeah. he's like do it again she's like she's got like the biggest smile on her face yeah it's a it's a really fun movie and I think it's it's little moments like that that just add so much to the fabric of this film. It's a good way too to make a fight scene still be light. Um mm-hmm. because yeah, like having because it is a tricky thing and I'm sure as a filmmaker it's something that you know one struggles with all the time is like tone when it comes not tone in general but tone specifically when you're dealing with material that is implicitly violent and it's violent in a light in a silly way but it is still violent like how do you offset that to keep it light and that's a great detail for doing just that um and also within the you know sort of digesis of the film that it is like this this effort to help him i think it really speaks strongly to hepburn's character in this and how big-hearted she is yeah uh because it also you can imagine like a version of this movie where that character is much more like bratty and spoiled and selfish and that's yeah, the main sure. motivation. Um, but it's not. It's it's way more charming and fun. And that uh, completely uh, seals the deal. And it's also, it's I think, really important because, you know, you're dealing with a character who lives in levels of glamour and wealth that most of us can only dream of. Yeah. And it's very easy to resent someone like that. Yeah. Um, you know, like I'm full of bitterness. It does not take much. But the, the character is so so charming and so just genuine and kind and and wondrous in her attitude towards things that it's like that's why you fall in love with her and the movie um and let's so. face it being played by audrey hepburn goes yeah. a long yeah. way towards that a as long well. way that also like she helps. was well yeah that was like one of her biggest that biggest films mm-hmm. like it's the I breakthrough was, the breakthrough yeah. right that's what put her out on the map yeah, so. there's a reason you don't cast James Woods in that role. No, um, <laughs> although now that I say it, I'm kind of intrigued. But uh, could be a, a nice dichotomy. 
<laughs> yeah, she's I, she's ahead, she's so good in this movie. Like she's just she's just exudes charm in in Roman Holiday. I think it's still my favorite role of hers. Um, yeah, she's. I think I'm pretty sure she won the Oscar, and yeah, yeah. she did, and well deserved. She's I gotta excellent. say. Like when I watched Breakfast at, I think I watched Breakfast at Tiffany's before I watched Roman Holiday, and I much prefer her in in Roman Holiday. Not to say like obviously they're two different characters, but I just like found her like way more fun yeah. in mm-hmm. in this one com- in comparison, I guess. It's interesting because I think Breakfast at yeah. Tiffany's is like the iconic Hepburn look. Yeah. But as yeah. far as like a performance goes, I think Roman Holiday is for sure. I don't, even, I don't even want to say necessarily the better performance, but the one that most embodies her strengths, um, yeah. and her just pure undiluted charm. Um, yeah. Although I probably should revisit Breakfast at Tiffany's, but well, and Roman I, Holiday for that matter. Well, to me, Breakfast at Tiffany's is just like when you see her; it's mostly just her as a like as the poised like person like heiress you know that she's trying to to be right and then i guess it's just more lighthearted, and mm. she's like letting loose more in roman holiday yeah 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 it's definitely the more fun film i think yeah um there's an undercurrent of i don't want to say tragedy but there's a certain melancholy to breakfast at tiffany's whereas roman holiday is just like pure yeah. joy absolutely um, I wanted to ask Ian, since you mentioned this is probably your favorite Audrey Hepburn performance, where do you rank Gregory Peck in the pantheon of Audrey Hepburn leading men? <laughs> I mean, she was up against um, Cary Grant, who we you know is one of my favorite actors in charades. So, mm-hmm. I mean, there you go. Gregory Peck That's is fair. an interesting choice for this. Like, he works really well, but I mean, he just is always old i don't know i don't know what else to say that he's like i don't know if he has ever been young yeah it's interesting though because he doesn't feel always old and like a ed asner always old way so much as just like he feels very like just gentlemanly always like he's mis- always been yeah stately gentleman always yeah yeah um yeah i it's funny you bring up the age thing because that's part of why i ask because for the most part hepburn was saddled with like much older men um i shouldn't say saddled because it's not like they were like bad actors and the one time she had an actor who was like more her age was the guy in breakfast at tiffany's and that guy's boring so like (laughs) you kind of have a bit of a trade-off there but gregory peck something about him in this movie kind of sidesteps that for me maybe it's just that he's still got like dark black hair it's not like, I don't know, Fred Astaire in Funny Face, which is like a wonderful musical and he's really charming in it. And obviously the man can move like an angel, but he also looks like the mummy's tomb by 1957. So, you know, that stands out. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Cary Grant kind of gets away with it because he's Cary Grant, but he does look old in Charade. Oh, he looks very old. Yeah. Um, no doubt. I don't know. Something about Peck feels like. I don't want to say like he's definitive, like that's the best leading man she ever had but he somehow feels right to me i, I ship him <laughs> there you go <laughs> that's the best way to put it yeah that's just because it's an all-around feel good like kind of movie right so you just have feel that like obligation to like root for 
that's true too the yeah. two of them like personally and like on a character level i think for me it's like one of my all-time favorite <clears throat> feel-good movies that's awesome like it's that's, it's just wow that's saying something ian yeah you know, it's just one of those movies that you can just if you're in a bad mood you can watch it and you won't be anymore it's just like sid and nancy <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, just like that. Mm-hmm. And the yeah, end of Evangelion, all your yeah. podcast favorites. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> and let's face it, having Rome as your background is a pretty good, mm-hmm. pretty like good thing to do for your picturesque, picturesque film. Like, you know, just like the the stills of um, like them on the bike together. <laughs> like, it's just so fun. <laughs> yeah, it's a great film. Love great, it. great vacation. Good vacation. I love Rome. I think it was one of the best cities I've ever been to. I gotta add that to my list of European cities I have not yet traveled yet. Might never travel to, but I feel like I I gotta go. <laughs> all, all roads lead to Rome. So, I'm just realizing though, like you know, we talked about how you mentioned William Wyler being the director of Ben-Hur and how different you know this is from that, but like Rome is a consistent. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> Could you have theoretically titled Ben Hur Roman Holiday? <laughs> From a certain point of view. As just a as like a little joke in there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, there is like he goes on a trip. Roman holiday movie. too. <laughs> he goes back to Rome when he's I mean, yes, it's after he escapes from, you know, slavery, but still it's from a certain point of view in a different age of time it's all it's all relative yeah uh i just think that's kind of neat that he his two most probably most famous films give or take a best years of our lives um and uh they do have that connection even though they're vastly different i just think that's neat so sweet what if audrey hepburn played judah ben-hur that'd have been sweet yeah, that would have been great. <laughs> I'm good with Audrey Hepburn Wait, playing any role. So. Now, Daniel, Daniel, it's up to you to make the draw the comparison between the two. Like <laughs> your that's your like pseudo episode for this is just the mm-hmm. comparison between Roman Holiday and Ben and uh, Ben Hur. Maybe that'll be my next video essay: Ben Hur, the yeah. real Roman Holiday. <laughs> <laughs> There's I'll something listen. there. Yeah. <laughs> Guess you gotta you gotta do a deep dive on it. Someone's gotta. Might as well be me. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's leave Rome and just go up and around the coast a little bit. So, Kira, why don't you take us away with your first pick? All right. My first pick is Monte Carlo. This is. Oh, I have to. I wrote down the the director. It's d- directed by Thomas Bazooka. 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 Anyways, um, his it's name is got... Bazooka. He's in the wrong genre. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's, uh, it's spelled B E Z U C H A. So Bazucha or uh, who knows? It could be either. Um, it was uh, the, it stars Selena Gomez, uh, Katie Cassidy, and Leighton Meester. This is like my my sister and I like the the most feel good movie that. So that's like Ian, your Roman holiday is my Monte Carlo. There we go. Like my perfect, my feel good. So um, the story is that 
uh, there's three girls. So um, Lena Gomez is uh, Grace and um, her friend Katie Cassidy, who is the character's name is Emma. They um, Grace is graduating high school. And for the last four years, um, she's been um, saving up for this trip to Paris. And her friend Emma, who is 21, um, is going to join her. They work together at a diner. Um, and so they've been saving up for this trip. And um, at Grace's graduation, her stepsister, Meg, who is Leighton Meester, um, she shows up late to the graduation. She's not really like her and Grace, like don't really have a relationship. Um, Grace's mom is engaged or married or dating um, Meg's dad. And um, so they're step siblings, but they're not very close at all. So um, as like a big surprise to all three of the girls that night at dinner, um, uh, Grace's mom and Meg's dad, they surprised them saying that they're, um, they're going to put, they're going to send Meg on the trip to Paris as well. And they're going to upgrade them all. And um, Meg is pissed <laughs> and, and Grace is also pissed. Like they, Grace and Emma did not want Meg to come on this trip. Meg does not even want to go on the trip because she feels like she'll be babysitting Emma and Grace because Emma is like kind of the she's like the the old like the older friend that's got like not a ton of direction going in her life like she's on again off again dating this one guy who's played by Corey Monteith and um she's not a bad influence she's just like got no you know she's a free bird <laughs> and so um they end up going on this trip the three of them together and I think they're all going for specific reasons. Meg's mom has passed away. So that's why her dad is dating Grace's mom. And um, Emma has this like big fight with um, with her boyfriend. And then Grace just wants to get away from high school and everybody that she grew up with. And so um, they're all kind of looking for a different reason to be on the trip, yet all just trying to like not really knowing what to expect like um one of the lines that's really that i just after rewatching it a couple of days ago that i found was really important is that grace and her mom are like kind of arguing about meg coming on the trip in general and um uh she's like i've been waiting for this my whole life and i don't want to have to like have it ruined by meg and her mom grace's mom says to her it's a, just a trip to paris it's not going to change your life or anything and then and that and it kind of just like sticks off of that line. I'm like, well, actually it will change your life. And it does for, for all of them. But in my opinion, like they, the grace being like the main character. Um, when you look, look at the, when you look at the movie poster, it's like Lena Gomez at like the forefront and then like Leighton and Katie Cassie, like at the, in the sides. But I think like the, the star of the movie is Meg. She has like the biggest character growth throughout the yeah. the whole film. Um, did you get a chance to watch it? Yeah, I did. Yes. Nice. Did. Dan, have you heard of it or watched it before? I've heard of it back when it came out. <laughs> I have not seen yeah. it. Um, 2011. Yeah, I remember it because that was when I started like really obsessively going to the theater. Like I was there yeah. virtually every week. Just seeing um, everything. Yeah, but this one did yeah. slip by me, but. I do I'm remember when I was when I was checking the Wikipedia page of 2011 films. So yeah, I saw the title many a time. It to me, it's like not. It's like funny that I 
love this movie so much just because it's not like typically in the range of like movies that that I I don't watch movies like that but it's just one of those movies that my sister and I like we watch together and we're like this is our feel-good movie and it's just got so many different like pieces to it um so yeah the scene that I was thinking of first is um they're at um so they choose this tour um and uh the tour is great like, yeah the tour is great it's like the and worst possible tour you could be on forever they're like on the bus and um the tour director she's like at the front of the bus and they're like okay on your left and she like looks and they all look and they've already passed the notre, notre dame and they she's like oh it was the notre dame <laughs> like like they don't even go close to it they're just like driving like adjacent to it like and everything is on the like on the tour is just at a run like they are like everybody quick 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 and they have to um they go to the Louvre and they spend only 20 minutes there. So they're just like walking past all these very famous paintings, like, um, like the Liberty painting, like, is that what it's called? The, um, where the woman, she's like holding the flag. They, oh, yeah. um, um, they walk right past it. And then the camera's just like focused right on the painting. Like they didn't even give a crap that they just walked <laughs> past one of the most pa famous paintings in the world. Um, and then at one point, so like it's I guess the scene, like the start, like the main scene, I guess I was thinking about is um like a collection of scenes, I guess. Um they are at the the Sacre Coeur. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Sacre I'm trying to like yeah, yeah Sacre Coeur. And I'm so a they're French walking... expert. That's I'm sure that's how you thank, spell it. Say thank it. you, Ian. Yeah. <laughs> um, I I think that's a good fact check there. Good <laughs> French reference. French Canadian doesn't count. Acadian French, like Quebecois. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I suppose oh, no, I'm right Saskatchewan Canadian French. That's true. Absolutely. That's the like what is what even is that? Nobody knows. It's the most <laughs> famous dialect ever. The most <laughs> like what's the word? Elegant, distinguished. It's get dialect. through the end of your grade twelve course <laughs> and then never speak it again is what it never is. Never speak French <laughs> again after you take it in grade twelve. Yep. When I was in uh, elementary school, our French class, we watched um, Cirque du Soleil. That was our French course. We just watched repeated, like, like video. <laughs> yeah, like taped, like the video. Like my my teacher, she loved Cirque du Soleil, and she would go and like buy the movies of them too, and she would just show them to us. <laughs> Sweet. There was there was a thing where like, and this was true in Ontario, wasn't specifically in my French class, but like teachers love showing them kids Cirque du Soleil. I don't know what it was. At the time, I'm telling you, it was just pure genius. Everybody's like, <laughs> oh my god, and they're French. They're speaking French. Like, and they're acrobats. Oh my god. Um. So anyways, they're at this, at the Sacre Coeur. Thank you, Ian. And they, um, they're walking up the steps and um, uh, Meg says to emma um she's like you're not going to be able to walk up these steps in those hoochie heels and I, it's just hilarious so she's got like these high heels on and as she's trying to walk up she realizes obviously she's not going to climb up all these stairs wearing high heels they're like four inch heels and so she just like puts her hand on this random man's 
shoulder. She's like using him as a as a rest to like take her shoes off. And um the guy looks at her and then the guy looks at Meg and that's like their first interaction and um he like his name is Riley. You find that out later, but um um Meg and him like lock eyes and he she trips on him and he goes be careful and he's Australian. He's like precious cargo and she's like oh my god she's like in love with him already because he just spoke to her and he's Australian <laughs> like and <laughs> like what more like that's basically you just have to exist if you're Australian and like people are falling for you apparently <laughs> and Australian and so, listeners let us know if that's true yeah let us know if you interact with Canadians Americans if that's all you have to do and then it's <laughs> it's funny she just looks at him and she just says good day and then she runs away and um and then they keep meeting up like they um they meet up at the Eiffel Tower and they're trying to um like have an interaction but then they the, the three girls realize that their tour bus is leaving without them and so it leaves without them and uh once they they're like like hammering down the stairs they're like flying because they're trying to make it to the bus and the bus leaves without them I guess like the premise of the movie, Dan, is that they like they miss their tour. And then as they're trying to walk back to their hotel, it starts to rain. They have to take cover in this um this really fancy hotel. And then an heiress is inside the hotel and they realize that this heiress looks exactly like Selena Gomez. They are twins. So this heiress is talking about how she doesn't want to go to Monte Carlo. And so she like basically just she skips all her plans and she goes to Majorca instead and then the people at the hotel think that Grace is this heiress named Cordelia and so they the whole rest of the movie is that Grace is pretending to be Cordelia in all these different situations so she's kind of like it's like Lizzie McGuire movie meets Fran France and Monte Carlo <laughs> <laughs> like pretends to be this this heiress um but everywhere they go they keep running into riley so meg runs into riley again and i guess like the main part that i when she runs into him again she decides that she's going to spend um the rest of her day with him at um in monte carlo and they go on a vespa and they go to a beach they go cliff jumping they have like a great time but she's still feeling really like guarded and feels like she can't be herself since her mom died and um so yeah the basic premise is that she's like on this vacation not because she wants to be because her dad made her go and she doesn't feel like she has any growth or like learning to do and like through meeting Riley and hearing about his story um just like realizes that she can embody that herself too and have vacation have travel like change her life for the better which she wasn't willing to do before so yeah yeah and let's face it when we're talking about vacations and we're talking about people that age on vacations like that yeah romantic flings are like a pretty big part of that <laughs> like and so. no kidding and that's where i like i was torn because i'm like i don't want to say to kind of fight the patriarchy a little bit and say that yeah it wasn't just Riley that like changed her life but he kind of like he kind of just like was a really positive influence to help her realize they like the movie 
Am I allowed to do spoilers on here? <laughs> it's fine. Yeah, I think so. All right. Unless there's spoilers. like a crazy twist that you really like, no. you need to. <laughs> no, it's not a crazy. Twist. Turns out Riley <laughs> was dead the whole time. <laughs> he was. He was actually dead, and and Meg could see dead people. So she's Haley Joel Osment. Um, it's all at connected. the end, right? Interconnectedness is, is key. Um, at the end, it shows them like on a. They continue traveling together, and it shows um, them in Peru at at Machu Picchu, and they like hike to the top, which is like so in, unrealistic. That's like the funniest part about it is they get to it, and it's like. They're completely alone. There's nobody else on Machu Picchu, which means there's no tourists, which which means like nobody knows about Machu Picchu, apparently. And <laughs> they're the only people there. But they get to the top and she like lets out this big scream and they're both like screaming together because she's never like let loose. That's just that's like the pivotal. Like she made it and she doesn't have to she can fully like start to heal from the death of her mother and and she's found a cute dude to hang around <laughs> the the thing that was interesting about this movie because yeah i just watched it yesterday and i honestly had never yeah. even heard about it until yeah. you mentioned it yeah. um it's but it's cut it's kind of got like this cheesy i don't know like disney movie setup right yes. like kind of like a you know the Mary Kate and Ashley Olsen movies or yeah. something. It's like, oh, this person got mixed up for for a rich princess or whatever, and now she's taking yeah. her place. Uh, but the execution is like a lot better than that. Better. Like it's, it's it's definitely has more going on than I than I like up. that it has that. It's like definitely cheesy Disney like chick flicky sort of like collection of things that like draws in a lot of well would draw in a lot of like young female watchers but then it has like when you watch it and you actually like um pay attention to like the deep which is like not something i did when i was 17 and watching it (laughs) for the first time but like now i'm like you know there's actually some good like emotional growth to be seen in the characters and the um just like i like the it's Ian, did you pay attention to like some of the, like the like the big cuts? You know, like just like a quick zoom, um, done in in some of it. And I found like the the color was really nice too, and like the the goofy font that they that they put across like the the top of the screen when they show like a new like they've changed to a new location, is is kind of fun. So yeah. those are all the good parts I like about it. Yeah, it definitely does. Um like genuinely care about their character growth, which, you know, sometimes these movies aren't really concerned about that and just kind of do it on a surface level. But I would say this goes deeper than that. I agree. I I agree with you. Um, And there's, there's, there's even like a eat the rich kind of aspect to it as well, which is, which was fun to see. I like the, yeah. Which is becoming more and more relevant every day. It feels like so. For sure. Yeah. It, my favorite part is like when um at the end they're having the auction and um aunt alicia she like comes in and she like she bids on the on the necklace and um like blows the whole thing up and like cordelia's like ah aunt alicia she's like hmm like i'm doing what i'm supposed to be and blah 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 but like it's just i just love that part of it yeah 
Yeah. Yeah, it's good stuff. It's a good feel good for me. I to your Roman holiday. Yeah. Well, yeah. it seems like a movie that's scratching an itch that doesn't get scratched as much anymore as escapism has become synonymous with like blockbusters and spectacle yes. and escapism instead that's like the cozy movie where yeah. you know it's it's just a nice uh way to it's an, a nice sort of feel good pleasant world and life to step into for 90 minutes or two hours or however long yeah um to boost your day and, and feel good going into the world and you don't we don't get too many of those anymore mostly they exist as hallmark movies yeah um and there's a place for that in the world but it's you know it's kind of a shame that like that's so much of the the cozy cinema we don't get like better examples of cozy cinema I anymore agree. yeah because um, there was i think like at a time at like the same at around that time there was lots of like vacation or like double life movies or whatever you may have like but like what ian's second like Ian's second film that he chose, I think that might be one of the most recent vacation films that I've even seen out in the yeah. last like five years, even. That's not cozy, right? And it, <laughs> but it has, but it does that. Yeah. We can talk about it later. We can talk about it later. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, you're right. It, it's, it's just kind of like a movie you can sink into. Um, because I honestly wasn't really expecting to like this movie. No, I'll be honest. I didn't, I didn't think you would. I honestly, I was but embarrassed. I, I got into it, and I was like, I mean, I like Selena Gomez. I think she's charming. Yeah. I really like her in uh, yeah. Only Spring Murders Breakers. in the Building. Spring oh, Breakers. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah, um, I love Leighton Meester. So, like, she to me, like her role in this one was not so far from like in the beginning, like who she is in Gossip Girl and like in other like TV little things that she's done or stuff like that. Yeah. You definitely do end up like liking her a lot more by the end of the movie. Oh yeah. 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 Uh, and there's a Cary Grant connection because at one point they're watching to, um, to catch a thief. Yeah. And obviously they're they watching all... it for Grace Kelly, but yeah, we're watching because yeah. they're in Monaco, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, they're so pumped to be watching Grace Kelly too. I think they're kind of like, um, there's the tie-in of like the the life that, um, or what you what embodies Grace Kelly to how like Cordelia and then like Grace are about to, like all three of them really because when they put all the like they put on the ball gowns and they like are just being her and her posse, and mm -hmm. it just like they find that connection in there too. Yeah, it's not a coincidence. The main character's name is Gross Grace. <laughs> I know, sure. right? That's exactly it. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Well, well, that's a pretty cool movie, actually. I've never even heard of it, so. I'm glad you took the time. <laughs> yeah. No, well, good pick, here. Well, uh, yeah, and speaking of uh, To Catch a Thief and uh, Alfred Hitchcock... Uh, let's talk about the 39 steps. There we go. Or not 39 <laughs> steps. The man who knew too much. I got my early 30s Hitchcocks uh, blending together. There's um, just too many. Well, and this is a good way to specify when I talk about the man who knew too much. I am talking about the 1934 version, not the 1956 version. But that Which version will specify to us, by the way. Yeah. No. I... Well, I did originally, but then it was too confusing because the 1934 was bracketed off. 
And then my moment was bracketed off. I'm like, well, that's, and I didn't have a moment initially too. So it looked like my moment from the film was just the year 1934. And that's not a moment. That's, you know, that's a full year. And how do you measure a year? Who even knows? But in any event, uh, I'm talking about the 1934 version. And I kind of went back and forth on what moment I wanted to talk about. And I'm settling on essentially the opening credits. So for a bit of context, both versions of The Man Who Knew Too Much have the same basic DNA of a story. You have a couple who are at the beginning of the film are vacationing in what is for them an exotic location. They get mixed up in a spy plot and are privy to information that is sensitive and to uh, punish them for knowing that or to keep them silent. The villains kidnap the couple's child. Oh, the horror. And initially, my reason for choosing this was because specifically I liked the idea of like, the fear and uh intention which comes from being so vulnerable while you're on vacation while you're away from your home and your normal and routine and habit um so i thought that was good vibes to send with ian before he went off on vacation (laughs) (laughs) but uh i ended up sort of really narrowing down how the film represents its vacation setting in the 1934 film it's the swiss alps which is where the film opens. And to put this in context, The Man Who Knew Too Much was not made on a particularly large budget. Um, it was made when converting pounds to USD about $50,000, which obviously in 1934 is a lot more than it is now, but it's still a low budget for a film. To put that in context, uh, the same year as this, the uh, Boris Karloff, Bela Lugosi universal horror film, The Black Cat, which is one of their B-level horror films, cost $90,000. So this is a relatively low-budget movie, and I'm willing to bet they did not have substantial access to actually filming in the Swiss Alps. There's some there, but it's very limited. And so thinking creatively, like, okay, how can we convey the setting in while using as little of the real place as possible. So we get a couple exterior shots and then we set a lot of it in interiors that match those exteriors well enough that the illusion is complete. And that's one thing they do. But the other thing they do is the opening credits are played over a shot of a pile of postcards. And we zero in on one of the Swiss Alps and it dissolves from a sort of wider shot of all the postcards to a close up of the landscape from the Swiss Alps postcards specifically. And then the titles play over that. And I think that's just such a wonderful cost-effective way to introduce that setting that maintains the glamour and uh, sort of appeal of that escapism, but also does it in a way that is, is still well within the means of the film. And honestly, like it's such a great image that even though the film is telling you, this is really just a picture of a postcard. You're not really mm-hmm. looking at the place it's so yeah. vibrant when it's blown up on the big screen, you kind of forget anyway, and you really feel like you're in the setting already. Um, and if that was all this moment is, that would be enough, I think, to talk about it. But I think the 1956 film actually puts this moment into even greater context with regard to how both versions explore their vacation setting. In the 1956 version, it's Morocco, specifically the city of Marrakesh. And it's like an A Hollywood picture. It costs a million point two dollars. And it's got lots of wide shots of the Marrakesh markets. And you've got sophisticated for the time special effects like rear screen projection to really put the characters there. You've got lots of scenes set in all these different locations. There's a much greater focus on that setting. And at the same time, it feels to me so much more hollow and fake 
than the Swiss Alps do in the man in the 34 version, even though we get much less of them and it's much more concentrated in these small doses. And I think a lot of what that comes down to is the fact that the the 56 version has a very for to just to say it bluntly, colonialist gaze on its Moroccan locales. I wouldn't go as far as to say it's like racist. I wouldn't even say it's capital P problematic, but you definitely feel like it's an outsider kind of awkwardly fumbling through. There's a lot of just like, you know, looking at the different clothes and the different ways they eat and different, you know, uh, facets of Muslim um, uh, or Islam as a religion, which I'm sure Hitchcock was an expert in, you know, and it's again, it's not like, <laughs> I, I, it's not the worst. It's certainly in the realm of old movies. You can do a lot worse. Um, but it does feel a little awkward. So even though there's all this production, the setting doesn't really leap off the screen. But the way in which Hitchcock is so casual in integrating the Swiss Alps at the beginning mm -hmm. of the 34 version makes it feel so much more natural. You really buy into that setting and its glamour, I think, even though there's far less of it. So that's my moment postcard that's a, i that's a really interesting like like what especially when you can compare um like the two different versions and like the like i wonder what the thought process behind like choosing a very different setting is between the two versions and of course the storyline changes a little bit because right? in this in i mean the storyline's the same but like in the 54 ver or 56 version whatever uh, I can't remember what you said, but um, isn't it their son is is kidnapped yeah. instead? Yeah. So, but thirty four, it's a daughter. A daughter, right? So, but just like I, when did Casablanca come out? Because forty three. Okay. So, like the the connectedness of like we already introduced what like what Morocco looks like in Casablanca, and then to like double that like double on on that for um mm -hmm. in like a completely different way but but the but like what you were saying it's not racist but it's like the like the what's the word i want to use um the glamorization of using morocco as a as a setting is interesting mm -hmm. i never really thought about it that way yeah i mean i think it fits really well with a lot of what like not to get too, I don't know, member to do the readings, everyone, about this, but yeah. like <laughs> Edward Said writings on um, the sort of way in which like the West, broadly speaking, fetishizes the Oriental and this like other uh, Eastern cultures as being like more exotic. Um, mm -hmm. And there's there's definitely elements to that here. And it doesn't feel mean spirited at all, but it definitely feels like kind of clumsy and like, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, it's a very like, like touristy yeah um and you know and it's not like the worst thing there's some interest to be had there uh but something about the the swiss locale in the beginning of the 34 version it just feels like it's way more comfortable and more organic for hitchcock to explore um and i i'm not sure what the impetus what like who at what point the location changed for the remake because I know the screenwriter, his thing was like, I'm not reading the original script or watching the original film. I'm just going to write the script based on notes that Hitchcock gives me in this meeting. And I'm not oh. sure if it was Hitchcock who said, like, this is the setting or was the writer. Um, and oh. if that's influenced by uh, 
I don't know, the culture of the 50s America and Hollywood more broadly. I don't really know. Uh, but it definitely mm-hmm. changes the mood of the of the two films. The 50s version feels much, much more interested in being a travelogue. Um, yeah. Which is also a genre that's kind of fallen out of favor. Like now that you watch a lot of films from this period that are like, there's a lot of just like, ooh, look at this exotic place that you'll never get to go to. And yeah, that's become less prevalent, uh, prevalent when air travel is much more accessible than it was in the 50s. Uh, yeah. I mean, not for me, but, you know, for other people. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, and then it it just seems like with having it in the Swiss Alps, like the uh, original version, that there is a cozy feel to that. Like lots mm-hmm. of people, like, right? Like people go on ski trips all the time. Like that's the coziness of it. And like having, um, I like I like the um, the fascination with, like the people skiing um, and then everyone gathering around and, you know, to watch that. Cause that feels very like, I am really drawn to like film or real life experiences that where humans are just doing things together, but they didn't do that. They didn't go there to do it with other people. You know what I mean? Like where they're just experiencing something cause they wanted to. And then as a part of that they are experiencing it with a larger group of people and in that one small moment right but i mean that's that's not what the entire film is about but but it's a, just, that's a that's a fun a point part. i think yeah. and there's the way that the original version is so casual about that because yeah. the other big difference between the original and the remake the original is 45 minutes shorter like it yeah. blasts through you know yeah. you you are by the time the remake leaves morocco the original film's got like 30 minutes got, left. <laughs> yeah. Like an hour um, and 15 in comparison to like. Two. Yeah. And yeah. and so the way that like you get that sort of you really settle in quickly to that Swiss location for the winter game stuff, the skiing and the, the skeet shooting they do, the latter of which is a pretty amazing setup for a pretty amazing payoff. Um, yeah. But it doesn't necessarily like it's not trying to dazzle you with those things where the remake feels much more like, ooh. Look at the ways they eat and how different they are from how we eat. Isn't that fascinating? And it's just yeah. like gets to the kidnapping. Yeah. <laughs> Which I like want Carol. To... <laughs> I want somebody to suffer. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hitchcock's motto is apparently let the audience suffer as much as possible. Well, stop showing me Jimmy Stewart eating. <laughs> so, good. so they're both good movies to be clear, but I think the 34 version clears it in a number of ways and this is one of the simplest and best yeah well you had me at swiss alps we all know i I like skiing (laughs) in movies i love to ski (laughs) yeah people ski in real life try to yeah yeah i haven't skied since i was in eighth grade ian and i are connoisseurs of table mountain (laughs) (laughs) that's right Saskatchewan's biggest ski hill. Saskatchewan bi- biggest ski hill, the, the largest you can get in northern Saskatchewan. <laughs> well, even if you call that northern, like north, mid, mid, <laughs> mid Saskatchewan. <laughs> One of the few times I've ever really injured myself was skiing. I mean, really injured. I've never broken a bone. It was minor. I dislocated a thumb. Um, and it wasn't even like in a cool way. Like I was like, you know, doing awesome flips down a hill and I fell. Just we were getting, stands. exactly. We were getting off a chairlift and my friend just immediately cut me off. So I fell. Uh, 
and I didn't think anything of it. And I'm like going home. My parents pick me up when the buses drop us off. And I'm like, my hand is really like not doing well. I don't think this is normal. My dad's like, ah, it's fine. Shut up. And I take off my glove and my <laughs> thumb is just like completely purple. I'm like, I don't know. It doesn't normally look like that. Cut it off. He's <laughs> like, oh, I guess Have you hurt you yourself. <laughs> so anyway, oh that's not why I don't ski anymore. I should specify. It's not like I was like, that was just too hard for me. I just find it interesting. That's my one big injury. <laughs> it well, makes you it makes you wonder why uh why Hitchcock chose this out of his early movies to to remake. It's a good question. And like you said, I know you don't know, but it would be interesting to know why they switched the location. Maybe they did they want it more of a travelogue or like I don't know. My guess for why he remade this one, and this is pure speculation, he might talk about this. In Hitchcock Truffaut, it's been a while since I've read that. Um, I might revisit it actually, but I would guess it's because the thir- the thirty four man who knew too much was probably the best convergence of being the most rich premise, and yet from his perspective, the most unfulfilled promise. Because I think that like of his early British thrillers, this is kind of the first one, and I like it a lot. But it's very quickly lapped by the Thirty Nine Steps and the Lady Vanishes. Um, which are not necessarily like perfect movies either. Like I think he would still go on to make better stuff, but they're pretty assured and accomplished. And Man Who Knew Too Much is a light, breezy movie, really. And I can see from his perspective thinking, I can do this a lot better now with the full resources at my disposal with my greater skill. Um, And on a technical level, he's not wrong, but I think the 34 version actually offers a lot more. And yeah, I'm not, uh, the, the location change is interesting. And I don't know if it's just because he found personally like Morocco was a more exotic location for him. Um, it's certainly as a setting pretty distinct from the rest of his movies. I can't think of any others that are, you know, I mean, really, in general, I don't think of his movies as being very like location heavy in that sense. His movies are defined for me by like interior settings, you know, oh, yeah. people in rooms. Yeah, um, absolutely. Like, I guess the exception is the field in North by Northwest, yeah. but that's like one yeah. scene. <laughs> well, like even just like rear window and psycho. Like, yeah. Yeah. Those are very room, room heavy or mm-hmm. interior heavy. Yeah. Sure. And he's also, he's someone who like, he is like very <clears throat> ma- meticulous in mapping out like his shots and his setups and his, his design. And like, when you're filming on a set, you have so much control when you're filming on location, you lose so much of that. Uh, and certainly there's aspects of it in this that are fake. Like there's some rear screen projection that is not held up necessarily spectacularly, but you know, for its time, it's, it's perfectly functional for how to do this. And that's shot on a set, but there is a lot of location shootings. So maybe it was that appeal to him. I was yeah, like, I want to see if I can shoot in a real place. And the answer is yeah. like, yeah, I'll go back to my rooms. <laughs> <laughs> that's where I feel most comfortable <laughs> in the room. <laughs> yep, yep. I, I, I hope I'm gonna go read through uh, Truffaut, Hitchcock Truffaut again, and I'm hoping that's an exact quote. <laughs> <laughs> and like Gary said, maybe Casablanca was part of that too. People are like, oh, people yeah, like Morocco, but well, because yes, I think it was such. Before. Yeah, but it just seems like I I wonder what like is there any other movies that were shot like in Morocco, like from that time, like in between those times. I'm sure one of the Bing Crosby, Bob Hope ones. Yeah. Yeah. And also it's not Morocco, but I think about, you know, 
films like the African queen is 51. And it's also very much like a, let's explore this, this, uh, mm -hmm. this foreign place from a, you know, Westerners perspective. And isn't it different and unique from ours? And that's another, that film is probably aged worse in a lot of ways than man who knew too much, but you know, yeah. there it, it's a similarly, like it doesn't feel mean spirited exactly, but it does feel a bit yeah. like awkward in a modern context. I feel like part of it could be um, like um, trying to expose people to what, like, look at all these awesome things that you could see. And like, all you have to do is travel here and mm. like, look, look at us. You could just come here and this is what you could experience yet. Like, it's just kind of like a postcard, like view of what, what could be like. And also I think, I think especially like if you think about the types of people that would watch those movies and then have the money to go there. And so that's very like a, a class classist sort of mm -hmm. thing too. Well, and I like that you bring up the postcard idea of it because yeah, that brings it right, right back to the 1934 <laughs> right? version. Full circle. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I love a full circle. Yeah. yeah. So for me, for me, Peter Lore, like, I am haunted by him since I was 16 because when because uh, M was probably one of the first um, movies that Ooh. we watched when I was in media school. That was like we went out to um, our teacher. He took us out to uh, Brightwater camp, this like camp. And we had like a little bonding like couple days. And so like <laughs> at 11 o'clock at night, he's like, we're watching M. <laughs> we, we watched M. So I'm just haunted by the the whistling and Peter, Peter's face. Like, yeah. And then they're like, well, we'll watch the Maltese Falcon next. I'm like, I can't. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> I don't want to watch that I can't. Again. I don't want to watch that guy again. No. I'm glad you brought that up because that's the other reason why the 34 version clears the remake is Peter Laurie is the bad guy. And like yeah. the bad guy in the remake is just like a guy. It's like, whatever. I've seen guys yeah. before. I see <laughs> them every day. A, but he's a bad guy. Yeah. And like he had, like he, that's what he, like, it seems like from what I know, I know very little about him, but like from what I know and what movies he was doing, like that was his persona, his mm -hmm. bad guy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or like, yeah, he was great. I'm pretty sure yeah. there's a Looney Tunes gag. It might be Disney, but I think it's Looney Tunes where it's a bunch of like movie monsters, like the Frankenstein monster and Dracula. Uh, a racist Fu Manchu caricature, and, yeah. and then just Peter Lorre. Yeah, <laughs> just like he was just an actor. That's not very nice. Yeah, just whistling. Yeah. So yeah, he's great, mm -hmm. and he's, he's probably like he probably is in Casablanca. He's probably like the best one scene character in movie history. Like, <laughs> Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, been a long time. Me, don't you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, I would if I gave you any thought. That movie is so good. Yeah, it is. Uh, he was also the bassist, for, uh, bassist, bassist for the character of Engine from Crash Bandicoot. Uh, so that's sure. pretty sweet. <laughs> that's what a tie-in. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. hilarious. Yeah. So. Oh my God. Uh, Ian, I mean, that's. <clears throat> I, that's part of your gaming generation, I think, or close enough. It's PlayStation I 1. I love Crash Bandicoot, original PlayStation. That was, mm -hmm. oh my God. Mm -hmm. Love it. Yeah. That's, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I like Too that you think I was that young. Yeah. <laughs> you, you talked about like Metal Gear Solid. Yeah. 
True. It's like this Crash Bandicoot one that had to come out before Metal Gear Solid one. I have no idea, man. Honestly, <laughs> You're the like two thousand and like two thousand and one, maybe two thousand and two. Maybe that's too early. I think the Metal Metal Gear Solid for the PlayStation one was like ninety eight, and oh Crash boy. Bandicoot was like ninety six. Oh my god! Question mark. Let me look. I'm guessing we've yeah, kind of was playing topic, Contra. But... <laughs> yeah, but you know, young at heart, young at heart. 1996 you got nice yeah i don't know why i had that (laughs) stored in the old cranium but i'm glad i did september 9 (laughs) awesome um so yeah that's my moment it's uh you know it's not a conventional vacation film because uh it's kind of like hey watch your kid because you never know but it's it's a great movie and i love the way that it captures the swiss alps setting with uh I don't want to say a bare minimum, but with a really precise use of a uh, lack of resource. Yeah, it's, it's a good example yeah. of that. Sure. Yeah, I love that postcard like piece. That's really awesome. Yes. All right. Well, I'll move on to my second pick, uh, which is a pretty recent movie. It actually just came out last year after Sun by director Charlotte Wells. Um, this is one that not neither dan nor i saw before our big end of the year top 10 right so we kind of missed out on this one Mm -hmm. Uh, and i think dan it's safe to say that we would probably make our lists oh yeah when i revised my list it was number two yeah oh wow (laughs) i love after sun pleasing it's It's, such a good movie yeah it's it's a it's spectacular i'm i of course when i first thought about this i thought like the moment that that stands out is the very end. But I'm like, do I want to go there? No, because there's probably a lot of people who, A, haven't seen this movie, and B, think we're going to try to convince them to go see this movie. So I don't want to give away that ending yet. Uh, So I'm going to try to talk around that. But it's it's a gut punch, we'll just say that. Yeah. Um, And not in the way that you expect it. So no. Anyway. If that's uh, if that's convincing enough, everybody go watch this film. <laughs> oh. Um. So the moment I'm going to talk about is a kind of a extended moment, I suppose, because it's more of a juxtaposition. I want to talk about for there's a moment where I guess I should set up the movie. Uh, so the movie is basically it's a vacation at a kind of like a beach resort in Turkey, mm-hmm. and it's a father. Yeah, father and daughter vacation together. Um, the daughter is he's a he's a single dad. The daughter is usually not with him, right? She's usually with the mom, is what you can gather from context. Um, but he's she's on vacation with him, and you can kind of tell that this is kind of like a yearly thing for them. And it's it's a very interesting movie because it's all through the daughter's perspective. But it's also told in like this flashbacky way. There are like, it, there is a framing device where you see her older and you can say, okay, the movie is her reminiscing on this holiday. Um, and that ends up playing a much bigger role as the movie goes on. And I think the scene I'm going to talk about highlights that. So there's a scene where they're on a scuba trip. So they're on a boat with, you know, a few other uh, resort goers and, and the experts and the the people who work there that are 
actually going to take them scuba diving. And there's a scene on the boat where you kind of see the father from two different perspectives. Um, when they start off in the boat, it's kind of neat because there's like this pretty cool shot of the father and the daughter kind of holding hands. And the scene, I want to kind of highlight the camera work in this movie because the camera work in this movie is stunning. So mm -hmm. the scene is kind of like very fully lit. Um, it's a really tender moment and the relationship, there's a lot of tenderness to the relationship there as well. She, there's a scene before this where the daughter actually loses uh, the swimming goggles and, and her father is kind of like, well, you shouldn't have been messing around. And then they kind of stop. And then she says, you know, I didn't do it on purpose. I, I know that those are expensive. And there's kind of like this touching moment between them. And then of course, um, they kind of sit together and cuddle together and it's the way that it's framed is really interesting. So the father who's played by Paul Mescal, who was actually nominated for the Oscar for this role. And Sophie is the name of the daughter. And when she's apologizing to him, he takes up most of the frame. He's in bright light and you can tell it's kind of like showing how big of a part of her life that he is and yeah. kind of the way that she sees him, right? She sees him as this, um, this caring figure, this very important figure. He's very important in the frame at that moment. And then she, she goes, she leaves, she goes somewhere else on the boat to kind of go get ready for the actual diving. Um, and while he's putting on the um, wetsuit, he's he actually strikes up a conversation with the, scuba diver guide or whatever i guess you call them uh, and they have this conversation and then you start to see little hints of what's going on in his head and he even makes comments like um i don't they're talking about their ages and stuff and he says i don't think i'm gonna see 40 i'm surprised i made it to 30 or something like that yeah and you start and this has been happening before in the movie as well you start to get hints of um what kind of struggles he's are going on with him in his head. And then the camera does something really, really interesting. So as he's finishing this conversation, you get this wide shot of the sea ahead and he's still on the shot, but he is like edging out on the very edge of the frame. Like I've never seen a director use so little of a character in the frame before he's like just on the very perimeter of it like um, here. Yeah, like, and he's just edging his way out of the screen. So it's like he's the minimal amount that he could be in the frame. So I think it's fascinating the way that she's able to use the cinematography, not just to show gorgeous shots, because there are many gorgeous shots here, but just to to show what the characters are thinking in sort of a subliminal way. When you see it from the daughter's point of view, he's fully in the framed. He's an important part of that frame when it's from his point of view, which it is at the end of the scene, he's like absolutely on the periphery. He's almost non-existent. And so it's this really neat um, contrast and it's very touching in like a very, very subtle way. And a lot of this movie has those kind of details, but I, this is one use of the camera that I thought really struck me when I watched it the for the second time around not too long ago so yeah very powerful movie i think i think that's like when i think about movies that 
that um, grasp me the most. And it's it's because of how the cinematography made me feel about it. Because like I was already, if there's something interesting like that, um, well, that's typically what I gravitate towards, like in a lot of movies anyways. But like, if that is a huge, if they're doing, they know what they're doing. Like they're yeah. doing it on purpose, right? And obviously that's super intentional. And then just makes makes the story way more impactful. It kind of just opens you up to, well, like you were just describing how you'd never seen a movie do that before to a main character, right? That just like opens way more um, up to the viewer. Like you're interpreting way more than maybe you wouldn't have before if the shot was different. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <clears throat> yeah i don't have a, uh, a ton to add to this moment i think you lay out what it's doing and why it's so effective rather well um what i will say i suppose is to put that into the context of the rest of the movie is how good after sun is generally at hinting that something is wrong without really talking about it too much explicitly there's certainly ants in the dialogue but they never there's never like the conversation you know what i mean yeah it is so much of it is just hinting at this this sort of this streak of not just melancholy but like anxiety and uh, an unsettling quality to the point that the film kind of throws you in or at least it did me with almost red herrings of like what the thing is going to be because one of the things i'd heard about the movie in general was like that it kind of blindsides you emotionally so i was kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop in some regard but even the filmmaking is leading you to feel uneasy and there's all these things of like okay this is what it maybe could be like sophie for example at one point kind of befriends these kids who are around who are like older they're not like that much older but they're older they're enough older that like this could be bad and not good and uncomfortable but that's not really what that ends up kind of being a red herring but it's like yeah. there's these little things where it's like how characters are placed in the frame, what Charlotte Wells chooses to linger on and what she chooses not to, like just kind of put you in this headspace of like something's not right. And I will say the moments where things are right, those moments of like it being like really sweet and sincere and affectionate between father and daughter are wonderful. I watching the film, I kind of was at a point where I'm like, I'm really interested in where this is going to go and how it's going to just crush me. And <laughs> oh boy, did it. But I'm like, you know what, if this was honestly just like 90 minutes or two hours or however long it is of like just these two having a, a nice little vacation where not much really happens, but they have these quiet moments of warmth throughout. I think I would love that, too, because they are so those actors are so just perfectly attuned to what each other are doing. They feel so believable and authentic. The and it chemistry. feels like, a, yeah, yeah. It feels like a really real parental relationship in a way that we don't really see that much in film. No, um, where, where it feels forced, where that yeah. felt so natural for both of them. Mm -hmm. And I guess the other thing I'll say, and it's not really related to your moment, but you talked about the ending and we won't spoil it, but I don't think it's a spoiler to say that the film makes very strong use of uh, Under Pressure. Yes. Yes. and dear listener when you see this film you'll never ever hear that song the same way the same which is kind of a problem because it's a song <laughs> that's like a very like 
basic song that you'll hear on the radio or at parties or at events, including like a couple weeks ago, uh, Brooke and I were visiting her parents and it was kind of like a informal gathering and, you know, people are having drinks and talking and the song comes on and you feel like that meme of the quiet of the guy in the corner at the party where it's like, they don't know X and it's yeah. Like everyone's like, Oh yeah. Under pressure. And you're just like, yeah, you know, now, like, if you're like me, there's two primal associations with that song. There's uh, this moment from After Sun, and there's the story of Vanilla Ice explaining how he 100% didn't plagiarize it, <laughs> yeah. which is one of the greatest interviews ever. Um, I don't know. I don't know if you two are familiar with it. I'm so. not, but I oh my god. Okay, I got to quickly just wow. tell it because it's amazing. It's MTV, yeah, and he's explaining how what he did isn't plagiarism, and he's like. You know, their song, because of course, Ice Ice Baby, it's like the exact same beat. He's like, their song goes like, doon, 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 doon. That's their song. Ours goes like, doon, 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 That little, it's not the same. He's like, there's no comparison. It's called delusional. It's the greatest clip I've ever seen. So now when I hear Under Pressure, I've got like two very polarizing emotional reactions. I'm well, like, on the one hand, that's hilarious. And on the other hand, oh boy. What well, does that with two songs? Because it does it with uh, R.E.M.'s Losing My Religion. Too. That's true. Yeah. Well, that song's dang. already kind of heavy. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I'm not at my I... girlfriend's parents listening to Losing My Religion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a. But... Uh... And I will say the other thing about the ending is that it's interesting because. Like we t- we all three of us t- said that this is kind of like a, you know, it, it's a gut punch of a movie, but in a way that's almost entirely metaphorical, which you don't yep. really get from movies very mm-hmm. often either. So it's it's definitely an interest an interesting unique experience. Well, I-, I just sorry, Ian. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say when I was rewatching um, this, I just rewatched that specific scene today. And I just thought about what I know from the ending. And then um, in like that moment, you can really see like how much he's trying. Like, do you know what I mean? Like he's working so hard to, and like when, when you do like a recap of what happened in the whole movie, that's every, like he's being as genuine as he possibly can because he loves his daughter so much and every moment he's putting in the most effort like at all times even when you see him like feeling weaker right like he doesn't let that um like he doesn't let Sophie like see that yeah yeah absolutely (laughs) and like and like you had mentioned mentioned Dan if this was just the two of them at a resort, that would be, I mean, that would be enough, but that extra, like that extra layer that you just mentioned, Kira, that adds so much Mm -hmm. to the movie. Mm -hmm. And it it is interesting because it takes a while to even really get that, to get like what the movie is about. While you're before you're there, it kind of does what you just said, Dan, it, it does that do that kind of hangout movie idea. Like the movie yeah. is just a movie that you can vibe with for a while, even too. And, and you kind of just 
relax with them at this resort and it's kind of there cool. are those hints though of like hey something's not right though yeah like i'm having a good yeah. time but something's not yeah. right um yeah it's it's a very special film in that regard and a pretty unique one and it's the effect i think it has on people certainly on me um i think i've spoken before about how i tend to cry at movies pretty pretty willingly like i'm not i'm not like <laughs> i can't cry like, i cry at everything i don't care but this film I didn't cry while I was watching it, but then later on in bed thinking about it, I did. And I don't know if any other movie I've had that precise an emotional reaction to where in the moment I was more just kind of shell shocked and then ruminating on it later. That's when it really like the weight came to bear. Um, yeah. It's also a pretty interesting film in terms of thinking through how you see your parents and how you see them as a kid especially yeah. in what you're not privy to and then trying to make sense of it later in a bizarre way. It reminds me of back to the future. It's a film about learning to see <laughs> your parents with more empathy. Um, yeah. <laughs> doesn't quite get to that conclusion in as fun a way, but in uh no. in a just as powerful one. So um, yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. And it completely uh, even after making my list, when you'd think your top 10 is like, okay, like I'll, I'll move stuff around, but it's pretty set in stone. When I saw that, I'm like, right to number two. Wow. <laughs> awesome. Our supremacy Wait, and... for life, but, you know. <laughs> what you were just saying, Dan, like my, when you think about the idyllic, like how you, we were, there's this information about our parents that we, we don't know. Um, I like that the one scene that I think about when you say that is um, when Sophie's in the, in the phone booth and she's talking to her mom on the phone and then uh, Callum goes and talks to her mom or her mom too. And then he says, love you uh, to her on the phone and hangs up. And, um, and so if he's like, why do you say lovely, love you to mom? Like, he's like, cause I love her. And she's just like, has this view of single parenthood and them ending in divorce or just separation that she can't compute that because she's not privy to any of the other like the despite the fact or besides the fact that they created her right she just thinks that like there's nothing more to it that they split yeah. up and that's it and mm -hmm. it's so confusing for her and that's a fantastic detail too in general yeah, i think absolutely because it really speaks to like we don't really know much of anything about that marriage no. but that no. line gives us an interesting insight into it and how unique it is for like movie divorce characters for sure what that usually looks like yeah yeah well just the fact that like any type of other comparison like drawing comparison to like single parents that take their their kid on a trip like you you have this other parents on the other side of that's like make sure they don't do this and don't do this and blah <laughs> blah blah right the controlling yeah. aspect of it yet like they're they they do this every year clearly right and yet they still get to have a fun time and um they share those moments like some of those moments they share together where she's like well mom won't let me do this and he's like well we can talk about it but like I'm not sure like you know you can tell in the beginning that he's like the more lax the more lax parent like she gets to go there and have fun with him yet there's still those that interesting comparison whereas like if you were to see other movies I can't even think of one at the top of my head but like 
movies where the divorce of the parents is like so focal that they hate each other and that the kid has to like fight this fight between who do I love more or who loves me more um, mm-hmm. and who, who am I drawn to more, which parent. And yeah. I will say that uh, Frankie Corio who plays Sophie is fantastic. Like she's, she's one of those great kid performances that doesn't come around yeah. very often. Yeah. I found her so relatable. Like just the, when you see just the timidness when he's saying to her the first day in the pool, like, go, go make some friends. And she's like, I don't, I don't want to go, talk. you know, like she's so yeah. shy, but like, that's so relatable. Like you go on vacation with your parents and my sister and I were like always like either dre- jealous or like drawn to other kids, but like, you're too shy to. Oh yeah, I was just at the lake with my niece and we were at the beach and I was playing frisbee with her and the whole time she's looking over at two girls who are hitting the volleyball back and forth and I'm like, "Yeah, you want to go play volleyball with them? She's like, no. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I'm not going to go talk to them. They're strangers. But she she wanted to. Wanted to. So bad. Yeah. And I will say this, like I, I I watched this movie a few months, like once it was available to me, I guess, because uh, it took a while to for availability. That's kind of why Dan and yeah. I hadn't seen it, at least up here in Canada. Mm-hmm. But then I rewatched it while because I was thinking I was going to do it for this. I think it hit harder the second time. I yeah, really I think... do. Yeah. yeah, I've I only seen it one and a half times. So I think if I watch it, <laughs> maybe I'll sit down after this and just turn it on again. My sister has it on <laughs> Apple TV, so I'll just. Oh, is that where it is? Yeah, it's on oh, Apple. My sister okay. bought it on Apple TV, so. Oh, I see. Yeah. Well, right. when Only it gets I a Blu-ray, I'll be it. picking her up. Yeah, that's for sure. Nice. All right. Okay, uh, Kira, we'll throw it back to you for a fun, a fun vacation. Here's my my perfect little. Here's what I love about the choices that I made, like the two <laughs> two movies, both about escapism in two vastly different violent ways like like midsummer okay ari aster 2019 um i watched an interview with him a couple where like shortly after the first time i watched it this is um after i rewatched it again today um that'll have been like the fourth or fifth time that i've watched it because it's um it is also a comfort movie for me in a strange <laughs> in a strange way um so in this interview Ari Ari Aster is talking about how it's because it follows hereditary or followed hereditary in in release time and um how he says it's a breakup movie and everyone like the interviewer is like oh yeah it's a breakup movie and he's like yeah about a breakup and everyone's like that doesn't make sense so quick little synopsis um it's it's interesting to give like the first scene of this like to talk about the movie to somebody who either has never seen it or like doesn't like horror movies or like thrillers or psychological movies and then you're like hey here's the kicker you should watch this in the opening (laughs) scene danny gets a phone (laughs) call that her whole family is murdered (laughs) like and her sister uh, committed a joint suicide of 
epic proportions. <laughs> um, so I just love that. It's, I mean, I don't love it. I mean, I'm, I'm truly horrified to my core by it, but so, um, Danny, uh, is in this relationship with this guy named Christian. He's a terrible dude. We don't like him. X is to Christian. I hate him. Um, he, he, you already know pretty much all you need to know about him when in like the first couple like opening scenes really like he talks to her disrespectfully he like doesn't care doesn't want to listen to her on the phone she's obviously worried about her sister who's bipolar and um he's like yeah like she always does this to you blah 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 and she's like well I'm quite worried about Terry la 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 um then Danny gets the news that her family is dead and um it like does this really interesting um uh like he gets the phone call at the bar from Danny and she's just screaming on the phone and he goes to to be with her um and the uh the shot is so like all everything that Ari Aster does with and like a, just A24 in general like such a great production company they're just making epic cinematography movies and um the shot just like panning down of like uh christian trying to console danny after she's found out this about her family and um like pans down and then just like like a jump cut to like her um uh and i tried to pay attention i'm getting caught up in myself anyways <laughs> I, I i tried to pay attention the fourth time around watching this to um art like really really specifically because if you watch this movie for the first time you don't know that the art everywhere in the film is telling the entire story right. like i actually i took a picture of the of the first frame and i was going to send it to you guys of like this is the the first in the first like seconds of the movie it's just like this medieval like spring or winter spring summer fall um like painting giving you the entire movie like and that's all you need to know um so christian um after he's like doing his limited best of trying to console danny through the death of her family um he is definitely um hiding this this trip from her like they're um uh him and his friends are studying anthropology um and they're going on this trip to Europe to study like midsummer traditions and they're going to go to their friend Pele's um, village and like commune in Sweden. And so, um, which is why Danny it's a vacation goes, movie, which is why it's a vacation <laughs> movie, right? They're going to go on vacation to Sweden for the summer um, from mid June to mid July. And so um, I think the point, like when you're watching it, it's like they're, they're ready to like experience a culture that they could like research and immerse themselves in. Right. They're, they're starting in Sweden, but it sounds like they're going, um, you know, they're going to Germany after they're going to maybe France or something. That's the plan, right. To go to all these other places after. Um, and they, this, ex these expectations obviously go completely sideways. Um, Danny ends up going to a party with with Christian and his friends and that's where she first hears about the trip 
for the first time. And what I loved about this is it's just like the pettiness of like telling your fr- like telling a different group of friends that you're going on a trip and then having that one friend go, hmm, why wasn't I invited? And like, why wasn't I good enough to be invited? And like, so Danny is quite hurt, yet she's like trying to play off that, you know, it's not, it's, it's fine, like that you're going to go, I want you to go. But also my family just died. So don't you want to take me with me or with you? <laughs> like, So um, I'm just trying to read through here. I, yeah, it's, um, I think like, that part of the decision making to like allow Danny how they're trying to reverse psychology her into not coming on the trip. He's like, yeah, I invited her, but she's actually not going to come. Like she's not going to, she just wants me to invite her, which I relate to quite heavily. I'm like, I've been in that situation where like, you know, somebody's not going to want to come because a, they're not going to have fun or B they're going to complain the whole time, which is Christian and his friends fear. Right. The fear is that they invite Danny on this trip and she's just going to be a downer the whole time, which is like not inaccurate, but also very hurtful. Um, so getting her, her coming on the trip is just. But she ended up having a great time. I saw her dancing around that pole. It was wonderful. She (laughs) is just happy as punch to be there. Like this is a happy ending. Like, whether anybody disagrees or not, like, <laughs> I'm telling you, that's the best. Uh, today I'm watching and I'm like, wow, there's so many funny things here. I'm just laughing as I was watching it. Like, it's just great. So, um, yeah, I guess the one moment that I was thinking about, um, I wrote it down here. Um, so as they're, like, on the trip, um they are they there's this point or before they go on the trip so like the hangout before they leave Danny is coming on the trip Pele says to her I'm so glad you're coming like I'm really really glad uh that you're coming and I wrote down um exactly what he says to her because like that just like sets the entire thing for it right because at at some point like they're like no, we don't want Danny to come, but Pele's like, yeah, no, I'm really, you know, I'm very, very glad you're coming. Like, I think it's good that you're coming. And you're like, all right, Pele's like a good guy. Like, he's and he's trying to be, like, the nicer friend, which I'm still, I'm still, like, you know, on, on the edge of, like, on the fence about. Is Pele good? We can talk about that later. <laughs> like is he a good guy not sure um but he's apologizing her to her for the death of his family or her family and um she gets up and she excuses herself because she's about to cry and she runs into the bathroom and as she's closing the door of the bathroom in the apartment it flips the shot like does this incredible transition to the door closing and she's on the on suddenly on the airplane like having a panic attack um in the bathroom of the airplane and you just showing her how like shows the the watcher like the viewer like how how nervous she is she in in more ways than one right just she's upset because this is the first big thing she's done with her family 
um, it's kind of reminiscent. Like you, most of the time that you travel, like on a plane, like the, your formative years are with your parents and like with your family. And so she, like, I, I know that she's in university, but she likely hasn't had like a ton of time, like between where she is now and like the last kind of vacations with her family, which is like important, but also because she's worried that Christian and his friends don't want her to be there. And, um, and then she's on, they're on the plane and it's like shaking, like the turbulence is shaking the entire, uh, the window of the, um, of the plane. And then it cuts again to them, um, in the car, um, driving in Sweden. And this is where it's like my favorite part because Mark, um, I can't remember that actor's name, but he's in so many things. He's in like uh, uh, Maze Runner. Will Poulter? Is that the guy? Yeah, Will yeah. Poulter. Yeah, that's his well, name. We're the Millers kid. Yeah. yeah. He's done yeah. so much better work since then, but he's still the We're Definitely. the Millers kid. That's where, ever, remember where you came from. <laughs> <laughs> and so he says this, he has a bunch of really stupid, like, like douchey lines where he's like, yeah, look at all the women here. And like, just, you know, doing classic, like foreign traveler things. And um, so they're in the car and he's being obnoxious and the car as they're driving. And this is like my favorite shot almost in the entire movie. It like uh, does this, like the pan, it's like a drone shot of like the car from the front or like the back and then it pans to the front and then it comes like right in front and zooms out on the car and then it it flips and it um and then you just see them driving along the highway with um an upside down down view of the car and the highway for the whole way the whole rest of the trip so it's easily like another minute and a half or two minutes of of driving and um and that's where you get like the first view of um, of like the triangle symbolism. And there's like a, a sign that's like upside down triangle. And I was like, and it's yellow and bright yellow, just like, just like the, the sacred temple in the village of, of Horga <laughs> or Alsingland. Um, but Mark has a bunch of really like classic, like tourist lines. He's like, talking about the ticks he's like what are the ticks like in sweden like can i die from this like you know ticks lyme disease is not a joke and he's like talking about that which i found really hilarious and uh and obnoxious but um just the fact that the whole beginning part is just them adjusting to um a new experience and um the bitterness that all of the men besides maybe pele because obviously we know what he's up to, but he, um, <laughs> that, um, uh, that they're all bitter that she's there and she is starting to feel bad that she's there in the very beginning. And I think that was like, that's like the real like gut puncher of it is that she's like, do I regret being here? Is this going to be really bad? And like, I don't want to also like she's regretting it because once they do they do mushrooms like right when they get there and she's tripping and she is feeling peer pressured into doing a lot of things that she like doesn't want to do but she's doing it because she doesn't want to 
disappoint Christian and his friends, which is like the price you pay when you go on a vacation that you necessarily like weren't necessarily invited to, unfortunately, which is the really sad part of it. So, yeah. 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 It's in just to go back to the Pele line. What is his name? Pele, yeah. Right. Yeah, Pele, it's interesting. Pele, yeah. It's interesting because when he says that, like he's very genuine about it. He's not faking Definitely. it. Um, no. But you, as a viewer, are kind of like, oh, is he like in love with her? Is that kind of the, yeah. where the conflict is going to be? Um, I'm not, still not convinced that's not true, but uh, that's not really where the conflict is. <laughs> the conflict is a lot of other things. Um, but but it's an interesting way to set set that whole idea up and set up some interesting dynamics in the group going forward. Uh, to get you anticipating what that vacation is actually going to be like even before you know like what the premise of the movie is really going to be for sure which is like the the interesting part about it right like the Pele question is interesting especially because one of the lines he says later that I see get quoted a lot is when he's talking to her about Christian and he says, and I'm I might get the exact line wrong, but it's essentially, does he feel like home to you? And I've I've heard people put that forth as like this deeply romantic line. And it's like that is disturbingly manipulative. Absolutely. Like to me, like the real brilliance of the film, and it didn't really click until I thought about it for a long time, is the way it kind of tricks the audience into thinking that. Danny and I won't spoil the ending but achieves like a catharsis through this and it's like she really doesn't and really like to me it's a much more insidious film about the ways in which emotionally vulnerable people are manipulated by cults and and how like you know she is in a very vulnerable spot and she's distressed and disturbed and depressed for all manner of very legitimate reasons and because she's technically getting support and community from this, it does seem fulfilling in the moment, but it's also being used to brainwash her into something far more nefarious. And if you read like testimonials from people who fall into like either Scientology or uh, cults full blown or even like right wing extreme groups, that is often this thing of like, I was alone and isolated and then I had I had friends and I had a community and it was about finding yourself and, you know, finding fulfillment. And then it's like, that's when they start sneaking in the weird stuff. Um, And the ironic thing is, is that if this community that she was trying to be a part of this little group would have accepted her, would she have reached that same point? Right. Well, and that's the other, I'm glad that you brought up Christian being, you know, a knob because it's interesting because he sucks but it's in a very like mundane not cinematic yeah. way it's yeah. I, I think mark being there in some ways is to like juxtapose what he could have been like he could have been much more outlandishly shitty um i i agree because when you think about the three of them like pele excu- excluded it's like josh he's very analytical and clearly like only about um only like cares about his studies and like his thesis and his masters and that's where like christian has those themes and like those types of like comparisons and then you have christian in the middle and then like mark who is just like he's there but he's like the fool right (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) like he's the fool and it's 
a very interesting when you say that Dan it's like definitely like could he could have gone either way yet he just is he just is he's neither yeah. neither of them but shares notes of both he's very but- and that speaks to like his central flaw with the way he treats Danny which is not mm-hmm. even that he's cruel so much as that he's spineless like he clearly yeah. is not into her anymore but he doesn't have the gumption to break up with her. And in a way he becomes a weirdly sympathetic position when then after the tragedy with her family, as much as like, well, you should have broken up with her well before this, but I also get why, like, how could you do that now? Yeah. You know, like you probably should, but at the same time, like, I don't know, like to be in that scenario, like, how do you do it? And I think that's really the key. um, Is this, is this fact that like, it's veering into spoilers, but like he doesn't really deserve what happens to him for all his flaws. And like you think about like in horror movies do this all the time. They'll set up a character to be shitty so that you're happy when they get their comeuppance to use a really silly example. Uh, this year's Megan, the story about a killer robot smart doll. Oh, yeah. There's a kid who gets introduced who's like just obscenely mean and terrible and awful and he's only there and only that bad. So when the robot doll kills him, you're not like, oh, that poor kid. You're like, ah, get him, Megan. Like, that's <laughs> yeah. the language of horror films. They do that all the time. And yeah. in a way, Midsummer resembles that structure. You have this boyfriend character who's really crappy and bad, and then he gets a comeuppance, um, yeah. which I won't spoil, but he gets a comeuppance. <laughs> I love the comeuppance. Truly. It's pretty great. But it, it's I... this thing where it's like, it's it's satisfying in a sense, but it's also like, he didn't really deserve that, I think. I wondered about that too, but then after the third time I watched, I was like, yeah, he does. <laughs> <laughs> he does. But it's interesting because I think like, um, in that way, the vulnerability of, of people who are like drawn into cults, um you can tell especially with the women like the the sisterhood of the women in this in this movie to Danny is is incredible and i i don't want to yeah i guess like at near near the ending without saying too many spoilers um when this one girl's like Danny's like what's over there and um and the girl's like that's not for us and she's like trying to help Danny. She's like, that's not for us. And uh, Danny's like, why? Like, I want to go there. And they're like trying really hard. But then I, and you can see this in the trailer and you, you don't really have any context, obviously, but in the trailer, um, when it just shows Danny and all the women and like they're grabbing her face and they're screaming, like that's what made me not want to watch the movie when I first saw the trailer. I saw that and I went, I will never watch this. That is too horrifying. But um that be that's like one of the most like tender, tender parts of the movie, I think. Is After, it though? for me, maybe I don't know. Like I it's tender in that like she's finally I think what Danny and she realizes this like through throughout a lot of it but I think my my first shock about like um with the Atastupa do we know what I'm talking about when I say that like the like the first um the first ceremony that they witness Mm -hmm. yeah so 
her she's not actually like the trailer shows how shocked she is she like grabs christian's hand but you don't know what you're what they're watching um but then like the second time it happened she's just watching it and she's got no emotion on her face and that's shocking because it's like it seemed like even there that's where she's like starting to realize okay like what is happening and am i being open to it She's like not sure if she's open to what's happening, but maybe she is. Which is all about immersing yourself in a different culture that you don't belong in. <laughs> <laughs> Just in an extreme so. way. Yeah. Oh my. Very much so. <laughs> yeah, wow. to me, like that moment, it's interesting though, because it is like I do agree with you, there is a sense of like catharsis to it. Uh, to oh, the, yeah. the with the women together and they're like kind of this primal sort of shared weeping definitely primal yeah um i do think there's a and there's it, it can even be sincere from the participants of that i also think though in context like even if they're true believers as it were the context with which this is happening and the group with which it's immersed in is inherently sinister very yeah um yeah in a weird way this is going to sound like a bizarre comparison but bear with me it kind of reminds me of the early sections in fight club when the club has been formed and it's like this is sincerely providing community for these men they have like they have other men they can bond with and share something with and that is good but they're also they keep hitting each other like it's also <laughs> violent and horrible and then it ends up escalating to even more violent and horrible things and yeah. it's this interesting thing that i think midsummer's playing with similarly where it's like there is genuine benefit in a sense to her doing this like it in a way is helpful but in a way that's not ultimately constructive or it feels helpful in the moment um i don't know because i find like a lot of movies that would handle similar subject matter about you know cults say would make the cults openly like evil and sinister and malicious and it's way more frightening when it's like it's seductive yeah it's like look what we can offer you and i think that that's where i sometimes i'm really i'm really silly with my sister like we look for the irony in moments in like movies like that like for me that's why i keep saying all this stupid stuff about like (laughs) he got what he deserved and yes it is a happy ending right because the irony of it is that by the the first time I watched it near at the ending I was like what even is happening I was so dumbfounded that I couldn't I could not grapple that this is a happy like my sister's like isn't that a nice ending and I was like what (laughs) what are we talking about like did we just watch the same film that's horrifying so the but like when you watch it from it's it's definitely silly to watch it from that like the ironic point of view where you're like hmm is this like really good for Danny it it's better than what she had but that's what the like that's the whole point of cults right mm. to like to to find a vulnerable person at their weakest or near weakest point, which is exactly where Danny is, and you know, find a way to comfort them, which, like it, you know, they're tr- they they've manipulated her to think, and like you said earlier, like they've definitely ma- manipulated her into thinking that she's being comforted 
and that, you know, it's not like they didn't plan this whole scenario out in their minds exactly when Danny decided she was coming on the trip. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's yeah. why Midsummer is such a great movie is because of that complexity of what are you supposed to be thinking about this at any given moment? Yeah. And how much of this is metaphorical and how, if you think of it metaphorically, you're thinking of it differently than if you're thinking about like realistically what's happening on the screen. Um, For sure. You're thinking about the complexity of the characters don't know how to think about this, what they're seeing right now. And so how are you as an audience supposed to know what, to th- especially with that cliff scene, you're like, they have no idea how to respond to that. And yeah. And yeah, it's not as, it's not black and white. It's not clear cut. So I think that there's a lot of layers to this movie that really just enrich yeah. it. Yeah. I think like when you think about the, that you know even like simon and connie their their characters how you know they're there on a vacation too right yet they they're so they're so like violently unaware of of anything that was supposed to be happening like i think the the information that like pele like made mark and Christian and Josh like privy to is that you know like they're doing and they're they're living out this like nine day festival and it's like a midsummer tradition and it's full of you know deep rooted history in our commune and I don't think Connie and Simon like understood that it seems like as if they didn't understand that at all right like like they're just travelers like they just they're just there for the thrill of traveling well, and to connect the, Ian, your point about the sort of complexity of it with Kira, your point about mm-hmm. you and your sister watching it in like a, a silly way, as it were, of like, yeah. oh, maybe it's a happy ending. I think that actually is a lot of why this movie is so special and why it's kind of, I haven't seen, I haven't seen Bo is Afraid yet, but at this point, this Me has either. grown into being my favorite Aster movie, because while I loved Hereditary, it's much more straightforward. And this film, I think the way that it like, it ends up putting you really in the same position as Danny where you're like, Oh, maybe this was good. Like those, the way it gets you to kind of, I think it kind of does trick you in the same way that a cult does. Like it seduces you the same way they seduce Danny. And that is pretty chilling. In some ways that effect is scarier than the actual content of the film itself. Which is completely different than hereditary, right? Because Mm -hmm. we still have like cults and yet when you finish hereditary you're like oh my god i'm never like put myself in a bubble i'll never be inherently vulnerable about around any stranger ever <laughs> like <laughs> nobody's gonna get to know me i am a closed book and this one you're like hmm, maybe that seems nice <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah yeah i think that actually puts it really effectively yeah um, and that's that's why this one's my favorite now yeah, I agreed. Yeah, it's, it's a comfort film. <laughs> <laughs> Disclaimer. The Disclaimer. Cinema in Seconds podcast does not consider this a comfort film. A comfort. Go in with caution. <laughs> please uh, please uh, consult adults before watching this film. <laughs> yeah. And if you yeah. are an adult, just, uh, I don't know, it's fine. <laughs> just go for it. Call your mom and tell her you love her after. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Nice. Uh, if you're kind of a shitty boyfriend like Christian, just break up because it, it's it, yeah. If you see from him, if you wait too long, it becomes really impossible. So <laughs> if bite you're the on bullet. the fence, just do it. <laughs> well, um, I think I can uh, close out our little trilogy of more depressing vacation films <laughs> with uh, the last picture show. And what's more depressing than a vacation? We don't actually get to see, but I'll get there a little bit of context. I mean, anyone who's like followed my YouTube channel or these, this podcast has probably heard me talk about the last picture show before it's become a really important film to me in recent years. And so basic to summarize the story in as quickly a way as possible it's about teenagers in a small, drab, dead-end Texas town in the 50s with no real prospects or hope or, uh, you know, things to really uh, celebrate or find value in. It's pretty dreary and depressing. And there's one brief section of the film where our main characters, Jeff Bridges and Timothy Bottoms, are just hanging out at the, the one restaurant in the town, and they're, you know, both kind of, like, aimless and unhappy at the moment. Uh, Dwayne, the Jeff Bridges character, is going through things with his girlfriend, JC. Sonny, Timothy Bottoms, as you know, he has an affair going, but is he's never that happy, really. And they're just kind of hanging around, and it's the weekend. And Dwayne's saying, Oh, I'm sick of this place. I really just want to, I want to get out. And, you know, well, where'd we go? It's like, Well, how much money you have? And they find out, it's like, Oh, we got however many dollars. We can go to Mexico on that. Just spend the weekend. Why not? We're, we're in Texas, we're on the border. Sounds great. And they just impromptu decide we're going to go to Mexico together. And they, as they're leaving, they meet up with uh, town patriarch and fountain of wisdom, Sam the Lion, who owns all the businesses in town, what few there are. Um, all the leisure businesses, I should say, like the non-oil drilling, which is where most of the money's made. And he gives them a little extra dough for their trip, tells them to have fun, gives them some fatherly wisdom about what to do and what to avoid don't drink any of the funny water and and the like and they go off on this trip and we get a last shot of sam looking on at them with a certain weariness we fade out and we fade back up and the boys are coming back hungover as as all get out uh in in a bad way especially Dwayne, who's uh craving tums sadly they've all been consumed <laughs> and they arrive back in town and we they're trying to figure out, like, oh, maybe we'll, you know, go to a drugstore and get something. Like, everything's closed. Like, this weird. Sam doesn't close his businesses on even Christmas. Like, what's going on? And they find a local person in town and ask him what's going on. And he says, oh, yeah, you've been, you've been away. You don't know. And know what? Sam died. And he's just gone. And the film is never the same after that loss, which is something that gets addressed later in a crushing scene with Ellen Burstyn's character um but the real reason I wanted to talk about this moment and I don't know if I have that much to say about it but I like how you know the film both manages to give the characters a very brief momentary escape without ever actually giving it to the audience you know like the film is defined by this dreary setting and how kind of hopeless and bleak it feels and you can imagine a version of the film where maybe we get like a quick montage of Dwayne and Sonny having a good time in Mexico, you know, maybe partying a little too hard. But nonetheless, this moment of like escape and pure, you know, 
pure freedom from all the baggage of their own lives and all the anxieties and all the, the dreariness that surrounds it. But he doesn't. He doesn't show a, a, a single frame of that. We just have them leaving and then them coming back. And it really solidifies this feeling of like you are trapped. There's no way out of this. There's no, there's not the economic opportunity to really leave. And there's not much fulfilling to stay here for and really do, which is what motivates Dwayne to end up joining the army and going to fight in the Korean War uh, later in the story. And I just, I love how effectively it really maintains that, that sense of, um, of feeling trapped. And then for them to come back and Sam just being gone is, and for it to be delivered so nonchalantly, because the guy who says it to them is not like a really dramatic moment. He's just like, Sam died day before yesterday. And it's just like, like the most unfathomable thing has happened to these boys. And And it's just, he says it just so point blank. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like I was I was shocked. He has the one line too where he's like, uh, he was a heck of a fella. <laughs> it's like that's yeah, like yeah. you know, he's it, like, not the most uh uh <laughs> elegant of eulogies in a sense. Yeah, but... that's for sure. And I, I just I guess I don't know, maybe it says something about me that like my vacation moment is like, what if you don't see the vacation? You're still just mm-hmm. trapped. But I do find it's uh just so such an important part of why this film has such a uh, bleak tone, even though in some ways, like it's not like a violent movie and nothing that bad happens per se. And yet there's such a, a feeling of like um, just an inability to overcome this, this melancholy that just lingers in the air. And I don't know, I find it uh, quite stirring. Yeah, that's a good pick. It's like that old saying, like, listen to what's not being said this is kind of like listen or see what's not being shown yeah um, yeah it's 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 an effective it, use of filmmaking for sure yeah i think it does enough right because they're so they're so stoked to go they're like yeah why don't we go to mexico like let's we've got 40 dollars like let's just go and uh and they what, set what out on their really way do for them yeah, mm-hmm. yeah right and I was a little fuzzy on like the time, like when I was watching some of the clips, like I was a little fuzzy on like the, the timeline that it set in. So I was like, $40, like, <laughs> what's that getting them? <laughs> like, <laughs> and then Sam's like, or uh, yeah, Sam says to them, like, do you need some money? They're like, no, nah, we're good. We don't need any money. And he's like, yeah, well, sure. Like, let me give you some. Like, you're you're gonna need a, a little bit more to get there and have a good time. And then you can tell, like, on their way back, yeah, they've they've had an interesting, like, either a really good time or just a very, a very interesting time. <laughs> mm-hmm. But that's well, a I lot like- of restraint from the filmmaker because you would For think sure. that a filmmaker would want to show some fun scenes in Mexico, but Bogdanovich knows that it's probably better to hold back. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, coupled with the hangover they get and how just destroyed they look, it really. <laughs> yeah, Dwayne looks just just messed up, mm-hmm. like the hair or and the hats, like both mm-hmm. of them. Mm-hmm. It perfectly sells, yeah, this like how unfulfilling it really is, and I think actually you bring up a really good point about how much you know is forty dollars going to get you? Because even in the context of it being nineteen fifty one when this is set, it's still not like 
that much money like how glamorous of a trip is this really like driving down the border to get really just drunk by themselves and still by themselves like maybe they meet some people but fundamentally it's still they can't really again escape like even them leaving they can't really leave because they're still bringing just themselves and their own baggage and they have to return to all that um not to say that like the trip still can't be fun in some ways but it isn't let's talk about some of the other films we've been talking about in the more glamorous and and uh, uh i don't know enchanting vacations this isn't that no. you know it's it's going down the border to get drunk for cheap yeah <laughs> to get booze cheap and then come back like and and really like it's hard to overstate how much sam's presence just lingers over the film he's such a vital cornerstone in that first half and then this section after he's gone that loss is like tremendous and without it ever without them having to talk about him and there is a scene later where um sonny's reflecting on kind of what how things have turned out with uh, ellen burston's character who's the mother of jc who's Dwayne's girlfriend who sonny is also in love with um yeah and he just says referring to the town looking back it's not the same now nothing's really been right since sam the lion died and it like it really just hits with such such truth it feel you really buy into that and it is also an interesting example of this idea of like that classic expression of you can never really go home and in a bizarre way like they have this you know this quest this hero's journey where they go out to this um they cross the threshold into adventure and we're and come home and home is both not the same, but we also don't even get the catharsis of like, well, what we learned and did on that adventure. We don't get any of that. It's just the crushing disappointment. Right. Five out of five. Brilliant film. <laughs> I got to yeah. watch it all together. Cause I just watched like a ton of clips today to, or the other day to, to get the idea of it. So that's definitely one that I, I didn't even like Jeff Bridges. Oh my God. What a young spry looking dude. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it was his first, like certainly his first major role. It might've been his first movie period. Yeah. That's cool. oh, it's so good. Yeah. It's interesting that like the pivot point of the movie, the characters weren't even present for. Mm. Yeah. Mm. It's right? like, what, what is he saying with that? I wonder. Which kind of comes back later with another character where something devastating happens again, but it's also like it's closer to, but it is also off camera. Which I guess makes sense because like some of the big defining moments of your life, some of the most tragic moments of your life, you probably don't witness. <laughs> right. No, like, yeah. Like that's so it probably. Well, and there's that kind there. of like, you know, that kind of like childish, like um like part to it too you know like where um well when I think about like if I like I had like when my not to get dark but like when my we're there already my, (laughs) (laughs) my when my grandpa passed away like my my mom was with him I my uncle was with him and um like I wasn't there or wasn't like allowed to be there. They're like my mom and my uncle and my dad, like they went to the town where my grandparents lived to be there, like when he died. And then they came home and they're like, Oh, he like grandpa passed away. And you know, 
there was that that point of like why you're like confused because you you're a kid and you 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 just had your parents leave and come back and now this loved one is is gone and it's kind of like that where they had they you know they they missed they missed the violent part of it or whatever happened right even just being there like even if they were if they would have been in in town like how would have that have looked like for them yeah right yeah it does add a sense of realism to the film for sure for sure it is the way mo- most people experience their tragedies yeah. yes yeah yeah it also takes away the one <clears throat> not that sam specifically is the one source of light but the one comfort for as <clears throat> in many ways bleak as this town is and and the lives of the people within it are the people in it are the one thing that makes it okay that makes it bearable sonny's friends and his his, his family and the, not his family is literally his, his father's you know pretty well entirely abandoned him but the people in his life and his mentors that's what makes it an okay place all things considered and then you watch as those dwindle away either for like sam they pass away or people leave this or that like ever and and how seismic those all feel and it is interesting this is the most dramatic loss in some ways but it's the one that we're the least privy to so yeah so upsetting my cat's meowing in the background yeah right (laughs) (laughs) like how dare you sam the lion he's one of our own (laughs) yeah yeah it's definitely like the way that he that andy guy like announces that death is like one of the most like like blunt versions of a of of sharing a death with somebody in a movie i've ever seen i think Mm -hmm. yeah and that understated quality kind of carries over to the and i probably have talked about this in the podcast before but the the funeral scene for sam where bogdanovich instead of shooting it traditionally he doesn't show a wide shot until the very end of the scene instead shows Mm. close-ups of everyone while you're hearing the eulogy being read and it's only at the end of the sequence that you get an establishing shot and it really is it's not really there to establish the setting it's there to having now spent time with all of these people as individuals we get a wide to have the full scope of this loss and what it means to the community sort of land as a conclusion to the scene rather than an introduction to it um but again it's it's understated in how it achieves that effect well great melancholic way to end off the show there dan yep um (laughs) hope it uh brings you both into your vacations with vim and vigor (laughs) (laughs) it's interesting how um we ended like this that we were like <laughs> started with the happy and ended with the uh, <laughs> like that, that's that's dan's charm that's what <laughs> hey i could have gone so much worse i came this close to picking a racer head this week specifically because henry says when he's asked in the film what do you do for a living and he goes oh i'm on vacation i'm like i can spin gold from that straw oh, let's boy. talk <laughs> oh. i love that and it's just like honestly i think i go and that's like the the optimist in me and like what i the way i view going on vacation like that's what i look for like i've had very like i've had a super 
almost cathartic like experience like on vacation before and um like those those are very tender like memorable moments like they're either like very impactful or stuff that I wish I could erase forever <laughs> from my <laughs> and repress family vacations with my parents and with my extended family <laughs> well I will say too from a I mean, it could be that we all have this inner mm -hmm. darkness that we just had to get off our chests. But I also think on some level, you know, we're talking about film and it's very difficult to make a movie where it's like it's a pleasant vacation and everyone has a nice time. Interesting. Mm -hmm. There usually needs to be some like Roman Holiday pulls it off, but usually you need <laughs> some dramatic conflict. So, yeah, like there's a, there's maybe a small smattering of films that are uh the, where the vacations are truly relaxing and pleasant, but that's dramatically tricky. So you got to throw in, oh yeah, yeah, Sam the Lion died. Sam so. the Lion died. <laughs> vacation done. Vacation <laughs> ruined. <laughs> Sonny never went on vacation again. <laughs> I'm just gonna run the pool hall. I'm never going to Mexican or to Mexico ever again. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One of the other movies I considered choosing which was also just going to be hilarious for me was um rv with robin williams <laughs> it's a little different than midsummer uh oh yeah you know there's yeah would have been an interesting jump <laughs> <laughs> but very telling if i would have just chosen like monte carlo and rv just to like haha like jokey movies yeah none of us really picked like a road trip movie no although i don't know that there's well i I, I thought like did maybe i hallucinated this did one of you write like christmas vacation or like something vacation as as your first choice or maybe maybe nobody did i mean uh, i don't think so that. <laughs> or, or vegas vacation like can you imagine like that would have been really funny <laughs> like those are just classic classic ones true we could have we could have actually made this the vacation podcast and just all only picked those movies. Only picked the vacation movies, <laughs> which we could go on yeah. forever. Well, listeners, tell us what uh, which vacations you would want to go on. Do you want to go to Rome, Monte Carlo, the Swiss Alps, a Swedish murder cult, <laughs> or go drinking in Mexico? What <laughs> what are you into? <laughs> Maybe that should have I'm been very my poll. interested to hear. Yeah, that's your poll for the poll. week. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Who who is ideal I idealizing which destination? <laughs> and why is it Sweden? <laughs> I mean, to be fair, you know, the the location itself in midsummer is lovely. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. Lots of flowers and yeah. sun. It's stunning. If you could be on the other end of that field and you're just like something's going on over there. <laughs> not that bad you know There's you got smoke. your little campsite <laughs> yeah all, like, all the horizon <laughs> that's about like some good tea like communal suppers it's fine yeah. everything's good mm -hmm. <laughs> all right just don't get put in the bear suit <laughs> just don't do it just don't look at the bear so we're just gonna not talk about the bear Hey. <laughs> honestly the actual best little moment from that movie is when pele is just like the children are watching austin powers because it's such yeah. a bizarre <laughs> detail yeah it's like inga or whoever like she's like 
kids are watching Austin Powers. If you want to go and join them, they're like, <laughs> oh, like this is a normal group of people. That is they the thing TV. where it's like, oh, I guess that's normal. That's that seems normal. <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot. I love that. It's so funny. Oh boy, great that's film! Good. Everybody, go watch it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Well, Kira, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. I was geeking out. Yeah, that's what we yeah. do. That's what we do awesome. here. Love films. <laughs> yeah, no, it was great to have you. Thank you. And enjoy your vacation. I, I really will, and you too. And Dan, I hope you decide to take a vacation. Please. I mean, it's, it's to Mexico and we never see it. Yeah, yeah there you go. Making his way to Mexico. I mean, last you picture 40 bucks? scared me away from it, you know? Like, what if I do that and then I come back and my mentor's gone? Like, I can't, I can't risk that. I gotta stay here. Bring them with you. Oh, that's that's that'd be a way around it. There yeah. Sweet. All right. Well, I think we'll wrap her up there. Um, Dan, we already mentioned your Kubrick video, but if you want to remind everyone again, yeah, Kubrick's books, the adaptations of Stanley Kubrick. It's uh, the best three hours and twenty minutes you could spend. There we go. Check it out. I don't <laughs> Long, know. I think it's longer than every Kubrick movie. Yep. It is uh, just narrowly beating out Spartacus, um, which, you know what? All I can say is it could have been a lot longer. I cut out a lot and I cut <laughs> out stuff early. Like I was writing, I think I was only on the passive glory section. I'm like, I need to rewrite the intro. <laughs> it's too long. I um, care just to let you know, he actually read every single book that the movies were based on before he. Yeah, did that's <laughs> what I'm gathering here. That's insane. Yeah, they're Where pretty do good. You have the time? Like, do you get well, paid to do that? <laughs> uh, I'll, yeah, I'll get paid for the video, and I get paid from my patrons. Uh, that's I amazing. it well reading it took two and a half years to make. Yeah, from I beginning research to finished, like I started reading the books in january of 2021 and mm-hmm. i probably f- and i finished the last book and then rewatched uh eyes wide shut in late august of that year i maybe started writing in the fall but only like briefly um i don't think i really started to get into the thick of the writing until the, the end of that year slash uh excuse me the beginning of 2022 and then it was just like okay working on all my other usual stuff between school and videos and and work and then also uh okay like i'm gonna write i have like a week blocked out i can write maybe another section for this and uh the writing took the longest and then editing i recorded all the voiceover in april of this year and then finished the edit maybe a week ago so it took about three months just to edit the uh raw voiceover into an actual video so it was a long process. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it was, it was. It's easily the longest I've spent on a video. I spent about as long on it as I did writing my master's thesis. Wow. And I think it shows are, because I think it's better than my master's thesis. What are you doing your your thesis on? My master's thesis was on uh, uh, the films of Mae West and the uh, Hollywood Production Code. Wow. So that's amazing. That's so interesting. I love that. Thank you. Um, And yet Kubrick's books was even better. It's it's it was a passion project and I'm really proud of it. And I'm really it's not to get too into this, I suppose, but like it's sincerely been really touching, not just that it's performing well, but specifically the people have had so many 
kind things to say about it because it was a long haul and a lot of me not knowing if it was any good or not. It was definitely long, but was it good? Uh, um, so to hear it that people, it, it resonated with them, they learned something or it, you know, it just kept them interested for the, the time it spent. That has meant the world to hear. So thank you to everyone who's watched and commented and, you know, any support at all. It's meant everything to me. So thank you. Way to go. Nice. <laughs> uh, Kira, you got anything you want to mention or say or share before we take off? Well, uh, not much, but uh, everyone wish me well on my road trips and the yeah. 10,000 kilometers that are going to go in my vehicle this summer. It's going to be so, awesome. Yeah. Nothing bad. No cults. Only good vibes. <laughs> <laughs> only only Riley's. Yeah, only Riley's. That's, <laughs> what, that's all we need, really. All right. Okay, well, Thanks I hope you're having me, though. I really appreciate it. Oh, yeah, it's it was been great. a blast. Yeah, it was great to have you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, everybody out there, I hope you're having some great vacations or staycations or whatever whatever you've got. And hopefully you're just having a great summer. Um, so we'll wrap her up there. I've been Ian. And I'm Daniel. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>